Welcome back to The Fuse Show, everybody. My name is Jim, and I'm the co-founder of Exfusion.io and also the co-host of The Fuse Show. Today, I'm excited to be joined by my guest, Veer Gidwani. Veer is the founder and CEO of Brella Insurance. Previously, he was co-founder and CEO of Maxwell Health, which Sun Life acquired in 2018. Veer is a proven entrepreneur and insurance innovator whose energy and experience have long been devoted to solving the problems of our time. Welcome to the show, Veer. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, absolutely. I, so we're gonna we're gonna jump into Brella, but not quite yet, because I want to I want to bring something up that I heard on a recent interview. I'm sure you remember this. You said that you spoke to 100 investors before one said yes on Brella, and I thought like I paused the video and I thought, dang, like that's so. A couple of things come to mind. One, I think there's this idea that the money is easy. Two, that points to your passion and dedication to get to that yes, and like you've been massively successful, and we're gonna go into that a little bit more uh, here in just a bit, but. Tell me a little bit more about that, like your your passion and drive to overcome those no's in order to get to the yes for, for Bella. Yeah, good good question. Um, well, first of all, I don't, I don't think my experience is unique by any stretch. Um, you know, there are lots of folks with ideas. And yes, there are lots of investors who are wanting to deploy that capital. But there's far more demand for that capital than there is supply. Uh, and even though we're, we're hitting records in terms of the number of companies funded and the amount of money being invested by venture firms, um, it's still you know not normal that people get funded. I mean, it, it, it it's it's the, the best ideas certainly rise to the top. So so that's I don't think my my experience is unique by any stretch. Uh, but to your point on on. Um, you know, what does that, what does that speak to in terms of perseverance and wanting to figure it out? You know, first of all, I, I think that um, investors, like lots of other potential stakeholders in your business, have tremendous input to provide. You know, yeah. I, I have sort of N of three examples, my three experiences, whereas most investors you'll speak with have N of 10 in any given week. So they have the the benefit of pattern recognition. And the way that I think about speaking with investors is that it, it's mostly an opportunity to learn um, and and continually refine on the one level your pitch. And I suppose that's obviously important, but more important is the is the refinement of your business, right? Mm -hmm. Is what I'm I'm proposing as the problem or the or the solution of that problem even the right solution? Does it make sense? So, you know, that that I, I think is an important learning process. Uh, but on top of that, I I, uh, I remember one of the most important things I learned in business school, and and you know, full disclosure, I dropped out of college after two years, or sorry, three years, um, one year of which was undergrad business school, and the most important thing I learned was an accounting class, and um, the professor was Professor Ross Archibald, and he said one day that you should never get emotionally attached to a sunk cost. And and that to me was one of the most important lessons I learned in business school. It not only applies to business, but I think it applies to life in so many different facets. Yeah. But what's interesting about that is that it's almost the exact opposite of persistence and perseverance. Right. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, not getting emotionally attached to some cost says that if something has been proven to not work, then be willing to cut it off and move on and invest your energies elsewhere. Sure. Whereas persistence says don't give up, right? Keep pushing until you figure it out. And, and in many ways, I think entrepreneurship is the balancing of those two <laughs> diametrically yeah. opposed concepts. Yeah. Uh, and that's not an easy balance, right? Because at no. some point, it does make sense to stop or pivot. 
On the other hand, it might make sense to keep pushing because that 98th conversation might yield something that the prior 97 didn't. So yeah, that that is a lifelong lesson. And I think it's it's as art, it's as much of an art as it is a science. And I think many entrepreneurs, especially those who've gone through at least one company, will probably have a similar story to tell about balancing those two uh, those two concepts. Yeah, absolutely. Have you seen that that graphic on the internet? This this guy is using a pickaxe and he's digging, he's tunneling under, underground and he's weaving his way through and he's going so far and he's right at the edge of all of the diamonds. And there's a little bit more dirt between him and the diamonds and he stops and turns around and goes back. It's like, that has stuck with me. And it's like, but but you're right. It's so hard to discern when is the right time to turn around and go the other direction versus to just push on through. And you have the, the sunk cost fallacy involved in that. It's like, it's that's a tough one. Are you saying that like I, I'm I'm jealous of the gray hairs? Like I think that in the in the business world, that's good stuff. It commands respect. But one of the things I, I like to talk about and think on is like this idea of founder age and experience. Do you feel like that you're more qualified to make that decision? That's part science, part art. Now that you have some some um, you know more wisdom under your belt, you you have some some history of of success in the startup realm, do you feel more qualified than the 30 year old Veer? And, and the short answer is yes, but I want to put a little bit of a frame around this. I can only speak for myself. There mm-hmm. are clearly sure. many younger entrepreneurs who might be first time entrepreneurs who have changed the world and been remarkably sure. successful. Mm-hmm. And they, they had that genius perhaps a lot sooner. Um, <laughs> but if I, and, and I don't profess to have any genius, but, but certainly the Veer of 42, is way better than the 30-year-old version, and and he's way better than the 22-year-old version, and you know in many ways that's to be expected, right? And and experience certainly helps us make um, better decisions, work more more intelligently, learn from our mistakes, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But despite all that, um, we still pitch Brella to 100 investors until one said yes. So it's no guarantee of anything. Uh, by at all. I mean, life is complicated. Businesses have a lot of moving parts that are complicated. Um, you know, what is success? You know, there's many definitions of that, but let's say we can agree on one. There are many things that impact it, right? There, and there's certainly elements of good fortune and luck, um, yeah. being in the right place at the right time that I think are important to be appreciative of um, and not to assume that um, you're, just, you're just better. I, I don't think that's true at all. Yeah. I can already tell we're going to run out of time. There are way too many great things I would love to talk to you about. Uh, great insights and wisdom in the first seven minutes. I, I appreciate that. Before we go too far, I want to circle back and, and talk more about Brella. So tell me more about uh, what Brella is and the audience that you serve. Sure. So the mission behind Brella is to make sure that health distress does not result in financial distress. Um, And the unfortunate reality for the vast majority of Americans, even those squarely in the middle class with pretty good health insurance through their company, um, given the uh, extent of deductibles or how how high they are, and Mm -hmm. given the reality of sort of the savings profile of the average American family, it's almost a certainty that if you end up needing urgent medical care, you're probably going to have some level of financial distress. And, And, you know, then that's not that's not surprising. I think most people, unfortunately, have accepted that reality of our healthcare system, sure. but it continues to get more challenging year by year. So our aim is to solve that problem. And as it turns out, you can design an insurance product that 
really helps to alleviate that issue uh, in a big way. And so what Brella is very simple. We pay out a lump sum amount of cash if you have any one of 13,000 conditions that we cover. So for example, if you um, had the misfortune to contract COVID and you were hospitalized and had a diagnosis of pneumonia, we would pay you cash and you could use that cash to do anything you need to help you on your road to recovery. It might be paying off part of your deductible, it might be getting extra childcare or whatever you need. Uh, And our belief is that everyone who has a medical plan will eventually need a supplemental policy like Brella. Uh, and and um, that's what, what we're building. Wow. So are you selling direct to consumer or mostly uh, partnering with, with larger corporations to offer this to their employees? Um, neither specifically. So okay. we, we actually are focused today on, on small to mid-sized employers. So not necessarily larger ones, although okay. I expect we'll, we'll focus on employers of all sizes in the near future. Um, but you are correct, though, that we are not selling this directly to the consumer. We're making it available through the annual open enrollment process when you choose your medical plan. And the main reason for that is that the decision to buy a product like Brella is highly connected to the type of medical plan you have. And it just makes most sense to offer it up at that at that same time. Ah, I see. I, I can actually see from from an employer perspective, from a founder perspective, that this will be quite useful because if one of my employees has an unfortunate situation like this, and on top of that, they have medical bills that are overwhelming to them, that creates a tremendous amount of stress and it would be rather difficult for them to focus on work and, and be at their best. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you know, if you if you ask yourself why do why are employers in the business of enabling access to health insurance and frankly, largely funding it in America. Now, whether we believe that's a good idea or not is a whole separate conversation, but, but the fact that they're in it is largely justified by the fact that one, it's a way to be competitive in the marketplace. Um, But additionally, it's to address the problem you just mentioned, which is that, Hey, if someone gets sick, they're not able to work. And that's why we offer them health insurance. The problem is, is that health insurance today um, leaves a, a level of cost sharing that is unaffordable for the average person. So right. it's actually just not, it's not solving the problem to the extent to which it did 15 years ago. And so because of that change, we need additional insurance, which I know sounds in some senses a little bit ridiculous, but it's unfortunately the reality that we find ourselves in. So yeah, agreed. I, I think as a founder, as a CEO, as a business leader, um, that's the right reason to be thinking about Brella because if your employees um, have health distress, that is an issue in and of itself. Um, but financial distress is also a problem. And that comes with mental distress. And, mm-hmm. and I don't mean that in a way that just to stigmatize anyone, but I think any person faced with hospitalization and financial struggles is going to have a hard time concentrating on their work and their family. That's yeah. a lot of stress for anybody. Yeah. So, you know, in, in one of the reasons that we we decided to do this was that a number of the incumbent insurers were actually not doing it very well. And mm. in fact, the number one um, provider in this space is Aflac, who many folks are familiar with because we see their yeah. advertisements on television. And without getting into the, the nuances and details, the bottom line of it is, is that when you look at the value of an insurance product, what you look at is of every dollar in premium, how much is paid out in claims? Okay. And the, the basic status quo amongst the incumbents, of which Aflac is only one of them, there are many others, 
is that they have a very low value ratio to the employee or an insurance speak, a low loss ratio. And we've just built a better insurance product that offers a better value proposition to, to folks, covers more, pays out more, um, and at the end of the day, um, solves the problem more effectively. Do you know that number off the top of your head, Veer? Uh, out of $1 spent on premiums, what's returned to the consumer? I do. Um, and it differs from insurer to insurer. And yeah. uh, it may even differ from year to year. I see, but think I see. of think of Brella as being, you know, not not just a couple of percentage points better, but significantly better. Well, that's awesome. Which I'm sure means it's more affordable and, and just adds more value in general to the end user. That's the idea. Yeah, that's great. Tell me more about the Genesis story behind Brella. Yeah. Well, first of all, you know, I I um, tremendous credit goes to the team that we've put in place here at Brella. And there was no sort of founding concept that everyone just built upon. This was certainly something that evolved and morphed into what it is today. Um, but but, the, but the, the core concept started really with the problem statement, uh, which is what I mentioned earlier on, is that health distress shouldn't result in financial distress. Yeah. And if you, if you look at the, the discourse in America today, and I think about this a lot, you know, why, why do we um, find ourselves in a, in a scenario in our country where there's just so much disagreement, there's a lot of stress, and I think so much of it has to do with the financial strain that a lot of people find themselves in. We, it manifests its, 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 in, the, in the vernacular of inequality, um, the ability to you know, sort of move up, so to speak. Yeah. And when you dig into the math behind that, you look at the budget of a family, so much of that is, is wrapped up into healthcare. So it, it's causing this outsized burden. And, um, you know, solving this problem actually unlocks the opportunity to address a lot of other problems. Uh, because when you free up these dollars, then families can invest in education for their kids. They can invest in after school. They can invest in, you know, all the other things that are important um, that we need to think about when you, when you look at a monthly or yearly budget that any family has. So, so that was the problem statement. And now we're insurance folks. So, you know, that's our, that's our hammer, so to speak for the nail. Uh, but you know, at, at the end of the day, insurance is a contract backed by math. Um, and so when you start to dig into, Hey, what, what, how do we make this contract simple? How do we make it easy? How do we understand the math in a way that makes this really valuable? Yeah. Um, some really interesting concepts started to, um, sort of become apparent and, you know, that led to the design of the, of the product that we've built. Let's shift gears a little bit. Tell me more about how you identified the marketing opportunity for Brella. Clarify the question, Jim. I mean, from, from what perspective? Um, yeah, just, just in general, how you look at marketing the product. Okay. Uh, so there's a, there's a technical answer and then there's sort of um, what we want to be to people. So okay. on the technical side, you know, there's a way in which insurance is, is sold in America. Um, there's a way in which insurance is bought and specifically employee benefits. So we talked a little bit about this earlier on. Most folks expect to get their health insurance and their life insurance and their dental and vision insurance, et cetera, in that employer setting. We're familiar with open enrollment. That's, that's sort of a, a, an annual experience that most working Americans are very familiar with. Yeah. 
Um, so that's sort of called the technical answer. So we work through that, you know, that sort of channel, so to speak, to make our product available to somebody. Um, but but the but the more important point I think is, you know, what are we trying to be to somebody? Right? What mm -hmm. what are we when they have Brella? How should they feel? And to us, that's a lot about peace of mind, uh, because I think that when when someone knows that they can't afford to be sick, um, that creates a level of sort of in the back of one's mind stress. Yeah. You know, we see it today, even like, why do certain folks not get vaccinated? And there are lots of reasons for it. But there's certainly a category of society who are not able to get vaccinated because they simply can't afford the time off to go and get a vaccination shot to prevent a disease. So that just sort of proves the point that, um, you know, there, there's a time element to this that we, we just have to keep in mind. Uh, and that when you when you can give peace of mind and give someone the sense that they have that financial safety net, you start to create opportunities for them. Um, and so that's what we want to have in someone's mind. And so a lot of that is about um, how we talk about Brella, the brand that we're building, uh, but it's also about forming coalitions in this industry. I mean, we, uh, clearly we're not solving this problem on our own. We have a lot of partners that enable Brella, but beyond that, we have a lot of um, colleagues, colleague companies in the broader ecosystem that are trying to accomplish a similar goal or whose work in a different area helps Brella achieve their goal. And one of the reasons we launched the Better Benefits podcast was to really um, talk about that with like-minded companies and to work with them, um, you know, to, to collaborate in whatever way we can to accomplish our goals. Yeah. Has it been fruitful in having, you know, positive conversations on this topic? Has that been pretty well received? Very much so. And, and uh, it, it happens in a, at a lot of different layers. So most importantly, for the, for the individual that has our product, um, you know, we've made it a, a um, requirement, a, a priority for us as a company to call every single person who files a claim with Brella, whether they get paid or not. And we mm -hmm. expect to pay claims the vast majority of times. But regardless, in whatever instance, we, we want to talk to them and let them know that we understand that this is a tough time. And we hope this money that they rightfully um, should be getting because they bought the insurance. So it's not like we're doing them a favor. We're delivering the value proposition we promised, but yeah. that we're there and we understand. So that that we've seen, um, most importantly, the positive energy that comes from that. Yeah. Uh, but secondly, you know, I mentioned, you know, a competitor, but there's there's actually dozens of insurance companies that offer what I'll call the incumbent traditional products in this space that are very different from what Brella does mechanically, but they aim to solve the same problem. Now, for those incumbent products, it's almost always the case that the employer is not contributing anything to the premium. So they're not helping to subsidize the cost of that product. So if you think of medical insurance, virtually every employer pays a portion of the medical insurance bill, the premium bill for their employees, 50%, 60%, 70%, but they provide nothing typically for the incumbent products in this space. What we've seen at Brella is the exact opposite, where huh. the majority of employers who are considering or have implemented Brella have actually provided a portion of the premium dollars on behalf of their employees. And if you, have to, if you ask yourself, well, why is that happening? Well, that's happening because they realize the value in the product. I mean, employers um, are smart and they know how to allocate their capital. And if a benefit makes sense and if it del delivers value, then perhaps it makes sense to fund it. And so that's another area where we're seeing sort of positive energy that is telling us that we're that we're onto something here that that is interesting. In fact, so much so 
that we've had a number of incumbent insurance companies come to us and say, hey, Brella looks like the future of supplemental insurance. How can we work together? Is, the way, is there a way that Brella can power our insurance company to go to market with a product like yours? And you know, that, that, if anything, I think tells you that the market is going to change. Yeah. Uh, and it's probably going to look a lot more like Brella seven, 10 years from now than what it looks like today. <laughs> that's got to feel so good. You know, um, that's got to feel good. It, it certainly, uh, you know, keeps us um, going, no doubt. I mean, one of the things that, and I'm sure many entrepreneurs who are listening to this or have been on your podcast have talked about the importance of celebrating the little wins day to day. And, yeah. and uh, we make that a priority here at Brella. And um yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of wins, but there's lots of learnings along the way, sure. um, and I think both of those are really important to sort of take in and and appreciate. Well, you're you're beginning to make a significant change, or what I think in the future will be a significant change in the way that things are done. I remember at past employers that I, I worked at years ago, you know, Aflac would would I mean, like Aflac guy would come in. It was a hard sell. Our employer contributed nothing towards those plans, and. I felt very much like we were on our own to sort of make that decision and then to pay for those and try to figure that out. So I think it's fascinating that you guys have been able to educate employers on the value to their employees to add this. I think that's phenomenal. Has that been, have you, have you met, have you been met with resistance on that where employers, are they generally open to have that conversation? Because you're, you're, you're needing to change their paradigm on the way they've looked at supplemental insurance for maybe a very long time. It's always challenging to launch something new, even if the value proposition is strong. The fact that we're new is in and of itself you know, a reason to say no. Um, mm -hmm. but, but putting aside those, hey, you've got to uh, you know, cross that chasm, so to speak. Um, we found that most employers are open and they're open for a couple of reasons. One that one is, is sort of very specific to our industry, which is that the incumbents have actually done a pretty poor job that um, to come and show something that's better is, is perking people's ears up because they know the status quo is actually not that effective, as evidenced by the fact that they don't fund it. Uh, if they mm -hmm. thought it was effective, they'd probably fund part of it. Um, but, but the other reason is, is that, and I think this is especially true as we've all collectively gone through the experience of the last couple of years, is that we realize firsthand that health distress absolutely does cause financial distress. And yeah. we may have all experienced it in different ways, but it was certainly, we've seen the shock on the, on the system. Uh, so I think that appreciation, and we see this conversation, we see it on, on our podcast, but you see it broadly about, you know, whether it's um, helping um, uh, people save more effectively and think about how their overall financial health um, works, or if they think about, their mental well-being. You know, these are all areas that companies are starting to invest in because they realize that that it's important to the folks who work for them. And yeah, I think that positive discourse is going to uh, push all of us to bring new innovations to the market. Uh, but it's also going to create a scenario where more and more companies um, have a role in that discussion and and realize that it's a place where they can make an investment and get a return that is really um, valuable. And, and at the yeah. end of the day, companies are no better than their ideas and their people. Um, so the extent to which you can um, help your people be successful and have the yeah. space to you know, pursue their ideas, that sounds like a win-win. Yeah, I agree. So it looks like Brella just celebrated its two-year birthday a few months ago. 
I'm curious at this stage of the game, what, what is your biggest challenge? Yeah. Um, look, this is, this is very still the early days and, um, you know, the biggest challenges for us, I think are to stay grounded in the sense that there are always signals that we can pick up on and learn from and continually get better. Uh, I do think that when you're trying to shift, um, you know, a whole space, you, you need a lot of allies and you need folks to want to buy in. And it's important for us to communicate as clearly the why behind what we do than just the what. Uh, because I think people at the end of the day um, get excited and get invested in in the things that they are um, motivated by because of what's happening, not just what's happening. So that's that's a big part of it. Uh, you know, I, I expect that we will see this this particular segment that we're focused on grow significantly over the next 10 years and make this kind of a product accessible to more and more people. Uh, and that, you know, further accentuates the need to collaborate effectively. And, and I think, you know, as we grow and move forward, those are the things that are sort of front of mind for us. Yeah, that's great. I want to transition to talking a little bit more about you and your experience and kind of what makes you tick. And I know that you, you've had a lot of success in your entrepreneurial journey, and specifically you had two previous successful startups. Will you share a little bit more about that journey and, and how you're applying those lessons to what you're doing now? Sure. Um, first of all, I, I don't like to talk much about myself. I would rather spend time talking about our company or our team. Um, and don't uh, credit any of the success that has happened in the past um, to anyone other than Good fortune and the team we put together uh, along the way, or the teams we put together along the way. You know, I, I, um, my brother and I have built our first two companies together and um, have been, you know, sort of mentors to one another throughout our entire careers. Uh, we both dropped out of school. In fact, you know, he he had actually barely finished high school before we started our first company oh, wow. and, and didn't end up going to college. Wow. Um, and you know, for both of us, our most important first mentor was our dad. And, um, you know, he was a doctor and, and it, it amazed me um, how often he would take our calls during the day while in the OR uh, or in between, um, you know, being in the OR. Uh, but, you know, he passed away pretty suddenly when we were fairly young uh, and after mm. we had left school in about a year into our first startup. And, you know, that was a, clearly a life changing um, circumstance. Yeah. Uh, but we we learned a lot of lessons before that, and one of them was to, you know, learn from our mistakes, be open minded, learn from others' mistakes, to take mentorship seriously, and to you know surround yourself with folks who can, who are better than you in what they do, right? And and to be okay with that. Uh, so you know, we've always had um, great advisors, we've had great boards, we've had supportive investors. Um, I consider our team here at Brella and teams that I've had in the past to be mentors to me in their in their own way. Um, so th those are the things that I think are most important. Um, I do think that you know documenting lessons is also an important part of the journey. And yeah. um, after after Maxwell, um, Vinay and I sat down and wrote a couple of pages, and I think it's I think it's like three pages of lessons learned. There were like fourteen of them. Um, and it's part of onboarding at Brella for everyone to read those just as part of, you know, my sharing of here's what I've learned. And, you know, maybe that's helpful to us. Um, you know, the one they're, they're all very important in their own right, but one that really stands out is, 
is to really understand the, the customer journey that you're trying to create as early as possible um, and to understand it in the context of the historical journey that has existed before you're bringing your innovation to market. And I think it's very easy for uh, entrepreneurs to think that what they have is so great. It must be so great that it, it, it doesn't even matter what anyone did in the past because it just, it, it's irrelevant. And I, I think that's dangerous thinking, yeah. um, specifically in insurance, because if you look at most of the companies that we're familiar with, they've been around for, in many cases, over a century. <laughs> when you put that into context, it, 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 to build something that has lasted through generations <laughs> of management teams, um, means that they're actually doing a lot more right than they're doing wrong uh, in any given day. So understanding that historical journey and to treat it with respect, it's, it's not bad, it, it, what, it's what it has been. And to understand how you can evolve it to what your view of the future is, I think that that's, that to me has been a, a really powerful thing and, and it's been a priority here at Brella. And one of the first things we did as an organization was map out that historical journey and map out the future journey. Um, which is why you so often see, and this goes back to the concept of experienced entrepreneurs in their, say, their 40s, is that they're often innovating in spaces that they're very familiar with. Um, you know, I've been in benefits for over 10 years. Um, most of our team, in some respect, has been in insurance or benefits for that long or longer. Um, so though we bring a fresh perspective, we also bring a perspective of, of experience of what we've seen and understanding and appreciating what works and what doesn't and what can change to be better. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I hear a lot of humility coming out from you. I, I'm curious, is that something that has evolved in your career? I mean, what is the, you know, was a 20 or 25 or 30 year old Veer humble to this extent, or is that something that has been learned through hard lessons over the years? I think that, you know, all of us benefit from values that were taught early on. So I like to think that, you know, probably has been something from the start. Although no doubt if we brought out my 20 year old self, <laughs> probably sound a little, you know, different in many respects and probably had a bit more of the bravado, I suppose. Um, but, you know, I've got, I got a couple of kids, 11 and nine, been married for 17 years, um, have been through a lot of hard knocks along the way. And I just think that, despite all that, um, you know, have been very fortunate. And I, I just think that it's really dangerous to under index a little bit of luck. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and like the fact that like we're sitting here in, on a Tuesday afternoon pontificating about entrepreneurship. I mean, God, that is a serious luxury in life <laughs> yes, um, to have. So, yeah. uh, yeah, I, I just, I just think that that that's that's sort of a, just an important part, and and yeah, I try to impart it on on our kids here, and and mm -hmm. to be grateful for what you have, and you know, and, and how they conduct themselves every single day. That's really important to my wife and I to drive home because we benefit from those values growing up. Yeah, are, are you intentional about that with yourself, where you take a moment where you just now paused and you're like, this is a real privilege to be able to have a conversation about our entrepreneurial journey at you know, in the afternoon on a Tuesday, right? It's like, are you intentional about that? When you get up in the morning, do you have sort of a quiet time? Do you do anything to sort of intentionally be grateful for the things that you have and the places you're at in your life? You mean, do I sit in the corner and cross my legs and close my eyes and think about <laughs> that it? Would be um, ideal. That would be the <laughs> ideal answer, you know, for the uh, show. No, but... <laughs> that doesn't happen. 
No, driving, like driving to work or, you know, in the shower or whatever, right? Like where you just experience that gratitude. No. Um, I do think it's like, you know, like anything, if, if it, when it becomes sort of just muscle memory, mm-hmm. um, then, then it, it's just, it's just part of what and who you are. And I think that that's where, where that whole has, you know, that whole element has gotten to. And that's where I'd rather have it be. Um, there are many yeah. things that sit in that category there. You know, if you ask anybody like what's really important to you, it's probably like three or four things. So uh, those have become just a part of life and, and who we are. And so I think about it. That's great. Yeah. I, I'm, you know, following this similar path of conversation, I'm curious what you, what you think about mentorship or how you think of that. And I know you hit on it just a second ago, but specifically I'm thinking of, of, upskilling yourself. And I think of this can be in like personal coaching, even therapy, but also from a business perspective, you know, you have experience running a 10 person org, but you've never ran a hundred person or a thousand person org. How do you think of upskilling yourself as the you know CEO founder to, to get to that level? Uh, the biggest thing is, uh, well, two, two things. One is around the teams that you have. So if you view your team as people who can mentor you, given their experience, then that just sort of opens up a whole new opportunity for learning. Um, and I think better delegation and all, all those sorts of things that are important mm-hmm. there. The second thing that, we, that we've done here at Brella, and we did a bit of it at Maxwell, but have really made a discipline of it here at Brella, is how we think of our advisory board. Uh, and in fact, the, the folks that we've recruited are deliberately recruited to align with leaders in our organization. So we actually don't convene our advisory board as a group. They're actually there for one-on-one mentorship to individuals on the team. Mm. Um, for and that includes me, but it includes leaders across the board. So, you know, for example, one of our advisors is the chief marketing officer at Atlassian. Um, Robert Chitwani is a you know one of the best marketers in the world um, and a very successful business person and you know salt of the earth person. Um, Laura on our marketing team spends um, time every month with Robert, uh, mm. being mentored on what it takes to be a great marketer um, for herself as an individual, but uh, also in the context of you know, the challenges or opportunities that we're trying to you know, work through here at Brella. Uh, so that, that repeats itself across the board. So those are, those are two things that I think are, are really important. Hmm. You know, it's interesting. I'm just kind of making some mental notes as we're talking and I, We've interviewed something like 100 founders in just the last few months. And I could count on one hand how many of those I didn't enjoy. And they were generally prideful. And I think most people would assume that founders that are successful have a bit of pride. I found exactly the opposite, where there's this degree of humility. And I, this is obviously very anecdotal, but there's, there seems to be a, a pretty strong correlation between the degree of humility and the the amount of success that the founder has seen in their career. And I just think that's fascinating. And to think of you know, looking to your team as potential mentors, that, that requires a whole nother degree of, of humility and just awareness of your own strengths. We have a, a person on our team named Joanne and we're bringing her up into an operations management role. And I'm a pretty conscientious person and she takes conscientiousness to a whole nother degree. The other day she messaged us and she's like, my, my co-founder, and I, she's like, Hey guys, I want to remind you that in less than two hours in Kenya, it's Jeff's one year anniversary. If you want to send him a note to congratulate him, I'm like that's next level. She's in the Philippines telling us in the U S about Jeff's anniversary and the specific time in the Kenya. I'm like, 
but it, but it just, I click. I'm like, I I'm not that conscientious. Like I've been running operations, but I'm better in other seats. She is incredibly conscientious, but like I, to realize that is such a, a gift. And I'm curious what you would say about what you see as your role, what your job is as the CEO, as the founder of Brella. Uh, pretty straightforward. It's it, I can put it on one hand. Um, set a vision that is worth accomplishing. And just a little bit on that, I, I don't think you can motivate people. I think people are already motivated about something. So the objective of any a company is to find the folks who are already um, looking at your star. They want to solve the mission that you're trying to solve. So recruiting, in my view, is very much about that. Um, people who have so been already working on mission this problem. first. You're saying, yeah, well, like and, in and the... seeking out people who've been working on that mission, maybe uh -huh. in different words or in slightly okay. different way, but but they've okay. been working on this. That's okay. one. So set set a mission and be very clear about it. Um, second is the objectives that we're focused on. So, you know, there are the two or three top objectives and then there are team level objectives. Be very clear about that and create alignment for everybody. Um, three, to recruit the right folks and to make sure that they are empowered to be successful and to make sure there's enough money in the bank. That's it. There is no other description to the job. I mean, that is, that is all. Okay. How good are you at doing those things versus other things that are, you know, maybe urgent, but less important? I mean, have you been able to apply the discipline to stick with those four main things? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if on certain days, um, folks on our team will ask, uh, does he do anything else? I mean, it doesn't <laughs> seem like, <laughs> uh, but, but that, but that really comes to, I, I'm actually not well positioned to do a, the vast majority of things that folks do in our company really well. I, I spend most of my time in conversations really not saying very much. Um, you know, where, where I'm trying to intervene is where there might be disagreement or there might be misalignment or misunderstanding. That's where I can come in and offer clarification, sometimes make a hard decision that someone's going to like and someone's not going to like. Okay, fine. That's going to happen sometimes. Um, but mostly it's listening and having context. So if I think about one-on-ones. Mm -hmm. To have a successful one-on-one, -on -one, which, which I do every week with, with my direct um, reports, uh, to do that effectively in my mind requires some level of context. And so to have some level of context, you gotta understand the problems people are dealing with. So I try to sit in on conversations they're having that mm -hmm. are not ones where I need to say much on, but they just help me understand context. Yeah. So that you know when I, when I need to help them think through something or offer a suggestion or advice, it's not coming from um, a lack of understanding, but it's coming from an informed perspective. Um, so yeah, I think, I think I do. Okay. Staying focused on those things. Yeah, that's great. I'm curious, do you guys follow a, a business operating system framework like EOS or similar? Um, not that I know of, I mean, we may, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I think of it as pretty straightforward. Make the mission clear, make the objectives clear on a quarterly, mm -hmm. half-year basis, align incentives to the objectives, and then yep. have a cadence of check-in. Right. So whether that's in one-on-ones or a weekly team meeting, or you know, we do monthly stakeholder updates that are authored mostly by um, team leads that go out to all of our advisors and investors. 
Uh, and that becomes sort of, and then we have board meetings. See, when you put all that together, that sort of becomes the cadence of operating totally. and everything sort of revolves around that schedule and it kind of makes sense. And we, we take dashboarding really seriously. So we want to make sure that people have access to the data and information they need so that we're aware of where we're at um, at any point in time. Um, you know, and th there's like nothing, there's nothing magical about any of that. Um, we, we might hear about it in podcasts or certain books described in certainly different ways, certain different ways, but that's yeah. a pretty normal cadence that's been shown to be successful. And so um, that's largely what we follow. Makes sense. Well, I, I want to end with this. And this is for the benefit of founders that are, are watching this. Maybe they're not as far along in their journey. If you were to go back to 20, 25, 30 year old Veer and give yourself advice based on what you know now, what would you, what would you share with yourself? I would have shared with myself the 14 lessons that we wrote uh, a couple <laughs> of summers ago after the first two startups. Honestly, that would have been golden. Um, I'd say that, uh, and we've talked a little bit about it here, but, but one other one I'll point out beyond sort of understanding the journey is um, the importance of advisors um, and how to think about that and, and, the, and the importance of, of context setting for advisors. So I've mentioned this in a couple of different areas, but I want to tie two things together. So I mentioned that we put out stakeholder updates every month. Um, mm. And we've been doing that since we started. And it's, it's a discipline that I will not stop doing. We'll keep doing it. One of the main reasons to do it is so that when an investor or an advisor is interacting with me or our team or wanting to be helpful, they are doing that from a very strong understanding of where we're at because they take the 10 or 15 minutes every month to read that update. Um, so I think the, the two lessons that, I, that I've certainly written about for myself and our team that, that are talked about here on this idea is to provide context to those who are going to be advising you and to put together a group of advisors that are relevant to the business you're building and can really help you make strong decisions. And this goes back to you know one of the things I mentioned that I learned from my dad is that you know failures are the pillars of your success, but if you can learn from the failures of others, that's even better. And so if you want advisors and investors to impart their advice, which is why they're there, you know, and not, not because they don't know that. They know that. I mean, we talk to yeah. our investors on our board and off, always the question is, how can I be helpful, right? So you want people who are helpful um, yeah. and you want folks that, um, that have context so that they, they can be helpful in a way that's really sort of relevant right now. Yeah, that's great. Well, Veer, this has been fantastic. We could talk for multiple more hours, I'm sure, but I really appreciate your graciousness. I, I appreciate your humility and I appreciate you being willing to take time to share your journey and a bit more about what you're doing at Brella. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jim. Absolutely. So the website is joinbrella.com. It's uh, B-R-E-L-L-A.com. And obviously you're on LinkedIn. What's the best way for folks to reach out if they just want to say hi or they want to learn more about your product? Um, I'm at veer at joinbrella.com. Um, if you're interested in our product itself, sales at joinbrella.com works as Perfect. well. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're, uh, we're, you can find us. Yeah. If they're interested in the product directly, shame on an entrepreneur, entrepreneur for reaching out to you directly, right? Because that would void the lessons learned in this <laughs> recording. Absolutely. Um, okay. Happy to chat with anyone who's excited about what we're doing. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Veer. Hope you have a good afternoon. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye.